Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 20 of the Essential X-Lapse, where I'm using some different headphones today, so I hope this doesn't sound too strange. Because I tell you what, it sounds very, very strange to me. Uh, the wife had to go in for a uh, root canal just now, and uh, they told her to, you know, bring headphones because it's going to be a pretty long session, and, uh, you know, you do whatever you can to make it a little bit more pleasant. And since we are still, after, boy, six months, eight months, <laughs> we're still eight months into a move, uh, the only headphones that we had in the house were uh, mine, the ones that I use for the show. So, uh... She took those, and I'm using some very, very cheap ones that I think I got at, uh, at the dollar store, just so I would have a, a backup pair in the uh, nightstand. But we will see how this goes. Um, today, we have a very special issue from uh, the Marvel Silver Age here. Probably one of the more important issues of the era. And it's not an issue of X-Men, but it does feature them somewhat prominently. They, they show up. That, that much I can assure you. Uh, this is The Wedding of Sue Storm and Reed Richards. This is Fantastic Four Annual number 3, 1965. Stories called Bedlam at the Baxter Building, written and edited by Stan Lee. Pencils Jack Kirby, inks Vince Coletta. Letters Artie Simic. Uh, colors, pfft, still don't know. Uh, cover price, not 12 cents, but 25 cents. This is a... Uh, I think there are three or four stories in this issue here. We have the the main wedding story as well as a uh, maybe two backups, uh, two reprints that are uh, that are being put together in this package here. But let's get into it. We open with Doctor Doom reading a copy of the Daily Press, not the Daily Bugle. I mean, <laughs> the Bugle circulation must have sucked back in the Silver Age. Uh, anyway. The front page news story is that today is the day that Reed Richards and Sue Storm will stop living in the Baxter building in sin and make their awkwardly aged relationship official in the eyes of the law. They are getting married. Doom is quite displeased by this, and he tears up the paper as he sits on his Latverian throne. And I tell you, the Daily Press, uh, if they can deliver a daily paper to Latveria, that's that's pretty impressive. So, uh, hey, up yours, Jameson. Um, anyway... He then kicks his way into his lab to try to figure out a way to ruin the big day. You see, he's going to use his emotion charger to make every evil... Let me see if I can get this word straight. I've, I've gone over this line about five times so far, and I can't seem to say the word menace. I keep saying menace. So uh, let's let's give it a shot here. He's going to use his emotion charger... Oh boy, now I'm messing up other words. You get what I'm trying to say here. He's got an emotion charger. It's going to make every evil menace in existence crawl out of the woodwork to crash the wedding. Now, he claims that doing it today will be when the Fantastic Four least expect it, which we already know that that isn't true from what Johnny Storm said in his X-Men cameo last episode here. Reed told him to be extra alert since, you know, this is the most opportune time to strike the Fantastic Four. So I guess Doom didn't didn't read the, uh, the cameo there. From here, we shift over to the outside of the Baxter building, where it's a sea of humanity. Now, if there were rafters, people would surely be swinging from them. Now, it looks like Stan and Jack make their first of two guest appearances in the issue right here. Elsewhere in the mob, Ben Grimm welcomes Tony Stark, who is dressed like Zatara, top hat and all. He's got a lady with him, who doesn't get acknowledged. Maybe it's Pepper Potts, maybe it's not, I don't know. Elsewhere still, Patsy and Hetty, from Patsy and Hetty, they've arrived... Uh, Patsy Walker would go on to become Hellcat, of course. Uh, Hetty Wolf would uh, go on to have a fashion blog. 
Oh well, whatever the case, uh, this is usually cited as their first modern appearance. And they both seem more interested in finding out if Millie the model showed up to the event than the actual event itself. Off to the side, a merry Marvel marcher cries out for Irving Forbush. Elsewhere, again, the puppet master is hanging out in the crowd, clutching onto one of his magic dolls. When suddenly, the spitten image of said doll begins to saunter toward the building. Now, Ben thinks it's a VIP due to his fancy schmancy dress, but... Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. know better. You see, they've been scanning all the attendees and found out that this dude was being controlled by another dude. And it's pretty hilarious here. We got this poor, dapperly-dressed gent. He's being mind-controlled, right? And S.H.I.E.L.D. still dogpiles and karate chops the living hell out of him for being mind-controlled. For whatever reason, this happens to shock the Puppet Master out of his own bout of being mind-controlled. And with his wits about him, he flees the scene. A handy editor's footnote claims that he was being controlled by Dr. Doom. And, of course, you know, the fellow we saw two pages ago tinkering with a machine set to control all the bad guys, so I guess we're just connecting dots here. Now, as he flees, he runs right past... Ugh. The Red Ghost and his super apes. My my favorites. Uh, We cut back to Ben Grimm, who's inside the luxurious lobby of the Baxter Building, and there he meets Professor X. You know, that guy that nobody's supposed to know is associated with the X-Men, but is always seen with the X-Men in public? Huh. Now, Ben can't shake the feeling that they're in danger, and Xavier's mutant mind all but confirms this. When, at that very moment, a drill whirs into the lobby from below. So I guess the Baxter building, much like the Alamo, has no basement. From the hole springs the Mole Man, and a gaggle of moloids. Xavier calls the X-Men into action... Jean rushes in and teleport kinetically raises the Mole Man up, since that's basically her one and only move around now. Cyclops then optic blasts the bejesus out of the Moloids, knocking them right back into their hole. There, Warren and Hank repeatedly stomp on them as though they were trying to jam toothpaste back into the tube. Then, Iceman absolutely fills this hole with ice, right? You know, just like he should have done with Juggernaut last episode, instead of just throwing like a a pumpkin-sized ice chunk down the pit. Now, for this, we get the old dig-dug cross-section, like when Juggernaut was underground. Uh, now, we see the, these poor moloids, they're just stuck under this absolute berg of ice. Now, Bobby says that it'll keep pushing the moloids further down at the pit as it melts, which I'm not sure that's how it works, unless the ice block is actually, you know, actually consists of, like, Drano or Liquid Plumber. Also, it's pretty clear from the art that the moloids are probably dead. <laughs> I mean, it looks... Like a long-abandoned ant farm down there. They're just, like, all akimbo, and they don't even look to be struggling. Um, And good thing this is back in the long ago. Otherwise, Bobby might be getting, you know, ready to head to an all-new, all-different pit himself. Ben then rushes upstairs to warn Reed that there are bad guys popping up all over the place. And once upstairs, he hears Alicia cry out. And so he bursts into the room where she and Sue are getting ready, and there he finds... The super apes. Ugh. Uh, Sue is protecting Alicia in a force field. Uh, Reed and Johnny follow, so Reed must not be all that stitious about seeing his betrothed in her wedding gown before the ceremony. Now, at this point, the Red Ghost shows himself. And uh, check this out. Johnny Storm attempts to set him on fire. Okay, so naturally, the ghost is intangible, so it really doesn't matter. But still... The very idea that Johnny's first instinct is to just set the dude on fire is 
kind of weird, right? Not something that we usually stop to think about. Anyway, when all looks hopeless, the room is suddenly bathed in a red light. When it goes back to normal, the baddies are gone. Now, this is thanks to Dr. Doom, who used his amulet to send the commies to a distant netherworld. Which might seem a little bit extreme. It might also seem a little bit easy, too. Eh? Like, why, ne- why don't they just have Doctor Strange standing outside the church all day long, sending bad guys to the nether realms? It you know, stands to reason that he could do it. Anyway, Reed declares that from this point on, they're going to be on alert. Oh, you don't say. From here, we get a montage of uh, bad guys arriving, and among them are the Mandarin, the Black Knight, Kang in the future, which is helpful, um, the awesome android, the Grey Gargoyle. Uh, we also see Thor approaching the Baxter building, but he is quickly taken out by the Super Scroll. Now, as Thor hangs from a building, he hurls Mjolnir at the Super Scroll ship, which smashes it to bits. This big boom gets the FF's attention, and so Johnny flies out to check out what the hubbub's all about. Back inside, Reed asks his lawyer, Matt Murdock, to announce to the guests that there'll be a slight delay in starting the ceremony. And does that responsibility really fall to the family lawyer? Oh well, it's a moot point anyway, because Matt just passes the buck over to Foggy Nelson and Karen Page. And before we know it, Daredevil is in the thick of the action right outside. Where wouldn't you know it... There's a pickup truck full of Hydra agents about to kamikaze themselves. They're going to literally drive straight into the Baxter building with a Vortex bomb in tow. I think I would prefer a Vartox bomb, but uh, what are you going to do? A Daredevil, he's able to shake all the bad guys, and the blind man commandeers the rig. So he is uh, behind the wheel right now. Elsewhere, Captain America, Iron Man, and Quicksilver are taking care of business. Uh, Wanda doesn't show up. Maybe she didn't get an invite. Now, Cap finds himself encoiled by the Cobra, who looks like a crazy contortionist pervert the way that he's wrapped around the big man. Then, the Executioner and Chantress show up to, I don't know, punch things, I guess? Off to the side, uh, Mr. Hyde kind of just leers at everyone like a creep, but then he gets gimmick-arrowed into the wall by Hawkeye. Then, the Enchantress uses her uh, hex powers to cause a safe to fall on Hawkeye's head, I don't know if there was just a safe hovering above a building or off to the side of a building, but uh, we shouldn't think about it. Anyway, it's a moot point anyway, because fortunately for Hawkeye, Spider-Man was swinging by, and he snagged the safe before it could splatter the archer all over the road. A few blocks away, the Black Knight gets into some aerial combat with Angel, so it is uh, X-related again, briefly. Warren is able to hold his own and even outperform the baddie until the Mandarin fires a ring shot into his back. Warren goes limp and begins to plummet. Lucky for him, Iceman and Beast are there to catch him. And now here, my friends, is the page where Jack Kirby just stopped giving a crap. Uh, He must have been exhausted because uh, what's to follow is pretty rough stuff. Now, the combined forces of Electro, Mandarin, Unicorn, Melter, and the Beetle, they all blast the bejesus out of Iceman. Which, you know, should probably, at the very least, leave a mark. It, It does not. Then Cyclops rushes in to blast the baddies back, which seems like we're overselling Sykes' powers just a tad here. Anyway, from here, we're in full-on Merry Marvel Battle Royal mode here. It's a real who's who, and uh, probably an absolute treat for Merry Marvel Marches of the Day. Now we cut away to see Iron Man fight the awesome android and the Mad Thinker. 
Then, Quicksilver takes on the human top in a battle to see who can save Jack Kirby the most time by just having to draw speed lines. Then, from out of the sea rises Atuma and his entire legion of boring undersea creeps. An editor's note makes sure to mention that we won't be seeing Namor here since he's busy on a fantastic quest in Tales to Astonish number 72. Could you imagine a comics editor actually caring about that sort of thing nowadays? Boy. Now, you'll remember a few pages ago where Daredevil, a blind man, was driving that vortex bomb around New York City? Well, he's still doing that, and he somehow knows that he's nearing the docks because he drives the sucker right into the drink. Uh, This smashes into Atuma's army, or I guess maybe that would be the Navy, I don't know. Whatever the case, Atuma is taken out. Uh, Matt does bail before the, uh, the rig goes over the docks here. On the waterfront, the heroes and villains continue bouncing off one another. And hey, Kang is here. From the future. (laughs) How about that? Uh, Reed wishes to himself that the good guys had the power of the Hulk on their side, which prompts another editor's note, explaining that the Hulk is incommunicado due to his current exploits also in Tales to Astonish number 72. I absolutely love it. We need more of this in comics, but uh, I uh, I think that truck's already driven off the dock. Just then, Baby New Year arrives. Well, it's the Watcher, but uh, boy, was he even weirder looking back in the Silver Age or what? Now, he snaps Reed up to take him to the fourth dimension where he might be able to find the key to his victory. And they fly through a photograph of whatever the fourth dimension is, which looks like a creepy collage of weirdness. And I think there's like an Easter Island Moai head here uh, being struck by lightning and particles everywhere. I really haven't the foggiest what we're looking at. I think there's a solar eclipse here in the background. Whatever it is, it's odd, and it's supposed to be. Anyway, Reed and the Watcher arrive at the Watcher's Citadel. The Watcher uses a technicality here, like he usually does. He tells Reed that the answer to his woes is here, and how, as the Watcher, he can't interfere if he decides to take it and use it. So, uh, real sneaky, sis, just uh, like the Watcher always does. Now, Reed finds a very stupid-looking machine, and he heads home with it. Now, while the battle royale rages, Reed takes his time setting up this gimmick. Once operational, it zaps the bad guys, and they vanish. Now, you see, it was a subatronic time displacer. It sends the baddies back in time, briefly, you know, shortly back in time, without any memory of what happened that day. Reed then faints, or swoons, or whatever. I don't know why. I mean, the machine did all the work. He flipped a switch. Whatever the case, the day is saved and the subatronic gimmick vanishes back to the Watcher's Citadel. From here, we finally get to the ceremony. Reed and Sue are married, surrounded by their closest pals and superhero peers. Nick Fury lovingly stares at us, the readers, with his one good eye. It's literally like he's making love to the camera, and it's kind of gross. It makes me very uncomfortable having Nick Fury look at us that way. And we close out the issue, or the story anyway, with Stan and Jack attempting to crash the wedding... But Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. tell him to hit the bricks. That was Fantastic Four Annual number three. Uh, Next time out, we will be taking a look, or we'll be kicking off a three-part storyline, our first ever three-parter, and this will be featuring uh, the Sentinels, Bolivar Trask, Master Mold. It's going to be a good time. Now, we don't have a back-in-the-day letters page here. This isn't, you know, an issue of X-Men, so I don't really worry about those here. So let's just get into some thoughts about this issue. A very, very important issue, and uh, one that... Boy, I mean, I talk about how long it's been since I've read some of these Silver Age stories, and, you know, this one felt 
almost completely brand new to me because it's been so long since I've read it. Uh, it it's weird. You can't really... I think a current year reader, like a, or a more contemporary reader, even a reader that's been around for as long as I have since, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, can't really appreciate this book for what it is. And, I mean, what it is is, like, the biggest indication yet that uh, all of these heroes occupy the same space. Sure, we've had uh, crossovers, we've had uh, guest spots and cameos, but uh, this was the first time that we see pretty much everyone minus Hulk and Submariner, who still get mentioned, uh, just at the same place at the same time. That novelty is certainly uh, long gone at this point, where, I mean, I've mentioned this before as part of the reason why I stopped reading so many Marvel books. Uh, there was just too much, uh, basically too much Avengers, too much S.H.I.E.L.D. taking over every single book, and I, I understand. I mean, billion-dollar movies, it, it totally makes sense that they would do that. Um, I just don't have to like it, I guess. Uh, I always cite, like, X, Uncanny X-Men number one, one of the six or seven that we've had over the past five or six years. Um, I always cite this as, you know, my first indication that uh, the novelty of this sort of thing is worn off, where... We launch a volume of Uncanny X-Men that started with like five or six pages of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Maria Hill. It's like, this maybe went a little too far. But um, here in 1965, when the Marvel Universe is still in its relative infancy, to see all these characters together, I mean, why wouldn't you buy this issue? Just knowing that all the characters are going to be there. Uh, Stan has been hyping it up left, right, and center throughout uh, so many of the uh, you know proto-bullpen bulletins pages, really just uh, getting the word out that this is a big event. And an execution, it was very well done. I mean, it's a silly story, right? Of course it's a silly story. It is a Silver Age story predicated on, you know, an emotion engine or whatever it was. But that said, um, it facilitates not only a whole bunch of hero cameos, but basically all the heavy hitters of the band side as well. Naturally, we, we don't get Magneto because they still cared about continuity back then, and uh, we knew that Magneto was off with the stranger doing whatever the hell he was doing, but it was still very cool to see all the bad guys together. Uh, I do wish that uh, Doctor Doom maybe did a little bit more in person rather than just opening the story and uh, pushing a button on his emotion thing. <laughs> I thought it would be uh, pretty neat to have him show up. And it's interesting not to... Uh, get too far off the rails here and talk about, uh, you try to compare this to how it would be portrayed nowadays, as I don't want to fall into that trap, but I feel like, had this story been told today, it would be a lot less action-heavy, a lot more, uh, a lot more heavy on the talking and the interpersonals, which, nothing wrong with that, I think, uh, that's definitely got a place in comics, and I usually quite enjoy it, uh, when it's not, when it's not just, you know, uh, 20 odd pages of uh, nine panel grids of static talking heads I think the perfect way to present this would be somewhere in the middle right? Uh, you have the talking heads, you also have action Just something not too far on either end of the fighty-talky spectrum right? But what else we got to say here um, Let's talk about the X-Men's involvement uh, They don't get all that much paginal real estate here But they got more than I thought they would It's uh, really, really interesting to see how... Uh, I mean, we think about the X-Men back in the day and how I think the revisionist history is that uh, nobody read the book. Nobody cared about these characters. You know, they were just kind of a failed attempt until Giant Size hit and uh, everything went topsy-turvy. But we can see here that they were quite uh, 
quite prominent in the Marvel Universe here. I think outside of the Fantastic Four, actually even including the Fantastic Four, the X-Men might have gotten the most panel time of any of the Marvel properties here, at least as far as the action bits are concerned. So it was really cool to see so much of them. What was weird is that uh, Spider-Man gets one panel. (laughs) He only gets one panel saving Hawkeye from a falling safe. That seems very bizarre. I thought they'd have uh, Spider-Man more prominently placed throughout this book. And hey, maybe that's just residual from uh, that complaint letter (laughs) that we got a few episodes back where someone thought that Jack drew Spider-Man and said that uh, he needs to tighten up his work on Spider-Man. So maybe this was Jack's way of saying, you know, screw you, (laughs) you're not getting Spider-Man. What else, what else? Uh, The Watcher. Pretty anticlimactic, right? Um, Just a, you know, literal deus ex machina, right? Just here, here's the thing that'll fix everything, and you push a button and everything's fixed, and... They even erase the fact that the villains got involved at all in order not to mar the uh, wedding day of Reed and Sue. So, eh, they probably could have come up with something cooler and more creative than that, but uh, what are you going to do? It is what it is. Uh, Finally, um, how about we talk a little bit about the art here, and not talking about that psychedelic fourth dimension page, which was kind of a trip. Um, It always makes me feel uneasy when they put those in the books here, because it just... It just feels so weird, <laughs> you know. It's a, uh, it's so um, like primitive <laughs> in a way, since the technology isn't, you know, wasn't what it is now, or even wasn't wasn't what it would become just you know a handful of years later. So it feels very kind of slapdash, but it's charming in a way. But ultimately, it just makes me feel kind of uneasy. But the art I want to talk about is kind of the tale of two pencils we have here. Um, the first half of the issue is very, very strong Kirby. And then, as I mentioned during the synopsis, we get to that one page where, uh, I believe it was when Angel was knocked out of the sky by the Mandarin, everything gets a little sketchy. And granted, I mean, we've mentioned this every episode, Jack draws like a hundred and something pages a month. And here, this is an extra-sized book, so maybe he, maybe he phoned it in. Maybe he phoned in the uh, the latter third of the issue, and I mean, it's not awful to look at, but it's certainly it's certainly lacking. But overall, uh, I'd say that this is probably a must-read for any fans of uh, actually any Marvel comics. I was going to say Marvel comics of the day, but no, this is this is a seminal issue in the formation and the establishment of the shared Marvel universe, and I think any Marvel fan really ought to check it out. I mean, don't go into it with huge expectations here because, I mean, it is still a silly Silver Age story. And uh, it's not wildly deep. (laughs) It's very fan servicey, but that's kind of the point, right? I think this is definitely one you should check out. And you'd probably do best to try to put yourself in the shoes of a reader of the day. Since, uh, as mentioned several times throughout this episode, the novelty of seeing all these characters together, that's just not a thing anymore. But if we try to put ourselves as fake-ass comics historians into some fake-ass comics history and uh, consider what this might look like to a reader of the day, a kid who maybe can't afford all the comics and then buys the one where they all show up, I think that uh, will help to illustrate how important this, uh, this issue was in its day and even to this very day as well. So check it out. It is on Marvel Unlimited. The, the first story's there. I mean, the other two are reprints, which you can also get on Unlimited if you uh, so desire. But that's how I read it, and I quite enjoyed it. And I think you all will as well. Now let's hop into the mailbag before we cut out of here. We got one letter from our friend Billy D. 
He's talking about the Juggernaut story we just covered, and he says, I love Juggy and the backstory here. The animated show, or was it Spider-Man and his amazing friends, did a decent job showing this relationship for the horror show it was and is. These letters columns, oy vey, some of these people need to get a grip. I also get the feeling that some of these letters may be written by someone in the office, as they're so crazy, it's all but unbelievable to me that some regular folks would write them. I tell you, every time I hear about uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, I always want to try it out again. I... I only watched a little bit of it and never really, never really got into it. Uh, but I keep hearing like little bits like this here uh, to see the Juggernaut and Professor X's story being told in a in a Spider-Man cartoon. That sounds that sounds interesting. I might have to I might have to look into that. Maybe we'll uh, do another animation special somewhere down the line. Just uh, taking a look at that since uh, I've never I've never seen it. Um, now the letter columns. Yes, <laughs> these folks are out there. You know, it's funny because, like, I think about comic fans today and how I think it's just... Actually, you know, anybody, any fan of any kind of media today, uh, I think we all try to present ourselves as being the smartest person in the room. You know, when, when the topics that we are passionate about come up, it's like we try to point out things, we try to out-obscure one another. You know, it's like, well, you think that's good. How about this? And here we have these letter writers of 1965 who... Preface with what their uh, what their passions are like. I, I'm into I'm into dinosaurs, and you got all the dinosaurs wrong. And I'm into psychology, and you got this wrong. Or I read this one thing by Darwin, and you have evolution wrong. And these aren't really mutations. This they're this instead. It's so crazy that these folks actually exert the effort to write in and take poor Stanley to task for inaccuracies, scientific inaccuracies in a book where we have a guy with wings. A guy with, uh, you know, lasers coming out of his eyes. A guy who could turn into ice. <laughs> I mean, where, where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line here? Um, uh, Billy wraps up with, anyway, keep plugging away. Things are bound to get better. The Roy and Adams work is definitely a step up from this era, for the most part. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying this. For as silly as uh, these stories are, they, they have such uh, charm and heart to them that... Even though the letter writers of the day think that uh, Stan and Jack aren't artists, you know, um, it's still so much fun to revisit these old stories here and uh, actually do it with like an eye towards analysis and seeing where things go and and having fun with uh, some of the silliness and the wonkiness uh, without fear of uh, reprisal, sir, being told that I hate everything. So uh, thank you so much, Billy. And uh, actually, Billy sent in another message to help clear me up on a couple of the things that we looked at in the uh, letters page or the Mighty Marvel checklist of uh, last episode, where we found out that Adam Austin was going to be taking over one of the books here, and I mentioned uh, that I have no idea who Adam Austin is. Well, it turns out I do know who Adam Austin is. Adam Austin was actually the pen name for Gene Colan, and uh, maybe one of these days I'll talk a little bit about why so many of these creators used pen names. Like we have Warner Roth here as uh, as Jay Gavin. It had to do with uh, where they were working <laughs> at the time. It's a very, it's kind of interesting, only in that it uh, shows what a different world it was back in the day. So uh, maybe I'll throw some notes together for that, and we can discuss that in a uh, later episode. He also fills me in on exactly what a Bull McGivney is. And if you remember, Bull McGivney was uh, part of the Sergeant Fury blurb. 
and Billy says that McGivney was the antithesis to Fury. He led another squad of Army Toughs in the Howling Commandos books. So thank you so much for both of those pieces of information, as well as uh, listening and writing in. It really means so very much. So thanks again. And uh, if anybody out there would like to be part of the show and write in, give me your thoughts on, uh, well, whatever you'd like, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call and leave a message at the X-Lapse voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90sXmen. And finally, for the Chris and Reggie audio archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available anywhere you find noise and or sound and or screeching on the internet. But that will do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for joining me on this blessed occasion of the wedding of Reed and Sue. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.